Welcome to the Musician's Venture Podcast. This is a podcast focused on lessons learned from musicians' backstories, as well as from building successful careers in the music business. My name is Nick O'Brien, and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events that Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. On occasion, I'll be joined by Allison M., the founder of Wisconsin Music Ventures, as she and I will dive into topics relevant to the music industry. So let's get down to business. today's episode, I'm so glad to have here in the room, well, in the Zoom room, I should say, uh, Ryan Corella. He is an entertainment lawyer, teacher, author, and host of the Break the Business uh, Break the Business podcast on Sirius XM 145, a radio show, podcast, and live stream geared toward empowering independent creators. So welcome, Ryan, to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. And Ryan, um, I will say that I got to know you through the podcasting world myself some years ago. Um, and I actually met, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I just saw Andrew Hitz last week. He was on a panel event of ours uh, for Wisconsin Music Ventures last week. So it's not, I actually really don't see you both that often, but it's, it's very strange that I saw you both in one week. But you were a guest on his podcast again, some, what, four or five years ago, maybe. And, um, and that's where I learned of your podcast, which is amazing. And then I got hooked into that and, uh, and then the rest is history. So, um, can you tell me more? I like to start off with, uh, what, uh, what you're currently doing in music in, in the music industry right now. Well, when I am not hosting the break the business program, I'm a practicing entertainment lawyer. I have the pleasure of working with so many fantastic creative professionals and organizations. And really, I just help them build stuff. Like oftentimes what lawyers do can sound very complicated. And we use a lot of fancy Latin terms that nobody uses anymore. And it can get pretty intricate. But really, when you get down to it, I help people build stuff. I help artists build careers. I help them build companies. I help them build the foundation for success. And as you can imagine, because as you know, creative professionals are some of the coolest people to be around. What I do is pretty satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is so fascinating to get to know entertainment lawyers like yourself and like how, I mean, of all the different types of law, how did you get into entertainment for a practice? Well, to answer that involves going way back. Yes. I think go right ahead. <laughs> like well and it's a it's a common story you hear with a lot of entertainment lawyers where you ask them how they got into it. It's usually a similar story. Around middle school, high school, they started to realize that they had a great love for the arts. They were usually musicians in school as I was, or maybe they were in the theater club, which I was in, or they were in garage bands or things like that in school. And so they really developed a love for the arts and for being around other artists. And somewhere along the line, usually in their late teen years, as happened to me, you reach the uh, conclusion that you're probably not going to make money in this business on the creative side. <laughs> that, you know, your, your willingness to create great things doesn't quite match up to your talent level. And you need to find other ways to stay in this industry. And for me, I actually found that I enjoyed the business side more than the creative side, which I think actually turned out to be a bonus because as previously mm -hmm. mentioned, I was much better at the business side than the creative side. But from a very young age, even in high school, I got really into how record contracts work and how 
movie studios would greenlight projects. I often found that my artist friends were coming to me with questions about the industry that I would know the answers to just because I was always reading Billboard magazine or reading Donald Passman's book about the music industry. As you know, I write, I see you smiling there. Everybody's had to read that book who's in our business. And right. it, as it was for many people, that book got me excited about the entertainment industry as well. And I just realized I really liked helping creative professionals. I really liked helping them build things and helping them move their careers forward and giving them the ability to focus on what they do best, which is creating great stuff and having people like me that they can trust to take care of everything else. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And and so I'm trying to decipher here. I think you were alluding to this. Were you a musician yourself? In the loosest sense of the word, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, if if we call like people who scribble on bathroom walls authors, I guess. No, I no, yeah, I, I played music in school. I was in sure. you know rock bands in school. I played guitar and piano, and I still I, I think my my instrument of choice now these days is my ukuleles because nice. I, I like I, I started falling in love with that instrument around college and law school because it was small enough that I could fit it onto an airplane without having to check it, which was a nice thing. And it's just nice yes. having like a portable instrument. And it's a fun instrument to play. And so that's probably my instrument of choice nowadays. It's great for when you're jamming. And while I would consider myself a person who plays and enjoys playing music, to call myself a musician might just be downright insulting <laughs> to some of the folks that you've had on this program who are really good musicians. No, but you can certainly appreciate it because you you've been there and you've tried some of it and and good to know that you uh, you yourself have been a guitarist and and all that kind of stuff. That that's so cool. Do you, did you play in a band? Oh yeah. 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 Um every I mean you, you have to have those everybody has like their high school band that they yeah. were in you know, just playing in somebody's garage and just making all the neighbors angry. I definitely did that. That was, that was a a route for me in high school. And I really treasure those experiences almost as much as I treasure the patience of my bandmates in putting <laughs> up with me, uh, despite not quite having the skill set of some of the others. But again, I just loved being around those creative people. Yes. And, I, and, uh, and I'm thrilled that I still get to do that kind of, you know, yeah. be around those people today. My last question on this topic. Do you remember any of the band names that you were a part of? Oh my God. Um, let's see. No pressure. Okay. I, I was in a band. I actually do remember some of these. I was in a band called Counterpoint. Hey. Which my parents, so my parents never got the name right. They always called it PowerPoint. Like, oh, is PowerPoint playing this weekend? <laughs> Uh, I was in a band called RXN, which we called like Reaction, but it was like RXN for short, and everybody would call it RXN. We're like, no, we're Reaction. And after we had to like, you know, correct the 19th or 20th person, we realized that band name probably wasn't going to have a lot of legs. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of just you know, silly band names like that at the time we thought were so cool. <laughs> and, That's hilarious. And now looking back, we cringe a little. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. First but, of all, uh, loving this interview. Nobody ever asked me this stuff, right? It's always just the legal stuff, which I'm happy to answer, but I love that somebody's unlocking <laughs> this stuff out of me. A lot of, a lot of memories, some of which I've probably repressed, but uh, <laughs> all good memories nonetheless. I, I kind of love that reaction story. And that's a good one. That's actually something very functional. You can pass along to musicians you work with. And, and I, I pass along things like that too. And, and I, I'll, I'll go ahead and mention it on, on, you know, this podcast. I think I might've even talked about it before, but I myself am uh, in a, a wind quintet. I'm more of a classical musician. And 
uh, I'll be honest, and we we joke about this still. Like our our quintet ensemble name is Avec Le Bois Woodwind Quintet. It's a terrible name. It's um, no one can pronounce it. It's not even in or English. Spell it. Or spell it. Yeah. I mean, when we just couldn't think of a name and it sounded fancy in French and, you know, it means of the wood, like woodwind quintet, whatever. Um, it's terrible. And and yeah, I would we would all change it at this point if we could. But um, but we, you do. Well, make counterpoint is available. We'll give that one to you freely. <laughs> Or RXN if you want it. Yeah, there you go. That's a great story, though, and it's very usable <laughs> for what you do now. Um, but uh, so when you were doing all this music making as a as a youth, where where were you growing up? Are you? I know you're in Miami now. Uh, were you from Florida to begin with? Miami, Florida, born and raised. I had a quick stint as a young boy where we bounced around the country a little bit because my dad was in the service, so we were going from one sure. base to another. But most of my growing up happened in Miami, Florida, surrounded by such a really cool music scene with a lot of amazing people in it that I think really just cultivated my love for entertainment. Yeah, yeah. So can you tell me just a little bit more about what that scene is like? Um, I know I'm familiar with some of like the club scene kind of vibes that I've heard about and seen on, you know, pop culture, TV, et cetera. But what is the the live music scene like in Miami? Well, I will say that whatever you've seen on any TV show or movie probably isn't accurate. I have yet to see a single TV show centered in Miami where I'm like, that's an accurate portrayal. Most of the time <laughs> it's CSI Miami, which right. is mostly shot in Los Angeles and, you know, features Mexican actors that they're saying are Cuban actors as if like people in Miami wouldn't know the difference. But it's a, it's, but like the actual Miami, the real Miami is a really cool place, an amazing confluence of all of these different cultures, you know, super diverse, a true melting pot of uh, different perspectives and ideas and nationalities, all of which absolutely are brought to bear in the music scene where you get this really rich, interesting music scene where it's a combination of some of the traditional sort of genres that are to just permeate throughout the United States where you might, you know, traditional uh, rock and hip hop and things like that with a huge infusion of Latin flavor and Latin styles. And all of it comes together to create some really cool music. And, you know, there's a lot of great venues down here where musicians are cutting their teeth. Not as many as there should be, to be honest. I think, mm -hmm. you know, Miami is no stranger to what we're seeing in a lot of cities where a lot of the great music venues that were up and coming musicians start are getting taken away. They're becoming pharmacies or, mm. you know, restaurants or things like that. And there's fewer and fewer places throughout the country where young musicians can cut their teeth and build themselves up. And Miami's no stranger to that, but we got a, we still got a few cool hole in the wall venues where a lot of great performers have gotten their start. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Who are some of the biggest musicians that you can think of that we, like the average person might recall uh, as being from Miami? Well, I mean, obviously on the Latin side of the ledger, you're talking about artists like Gloria Stefan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who came and who really, when you think of sort of the introduction of the quote Miami sound, at least on the pop side to the rest of the country, they were sort of the innovators and are still very much out there doing their thing. Uh, you also have a huge hip hop scene that's come out of Miami. Artists like uh, Trick Daddy and Rick Ross. Okay. Uh, came out of Miami and 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 out of uh you know some of the really great neighborhoods there where a lot of really awesome hip hop is happening. Again, you know, super diverse, a lot of different genres coming out of the city, a huge international influence which makes it really exciting. 
And uh, it's, just, it's a fun place to practice law too, because I get to interact with all of those creators and you know work with the labels down here, the publishers down here through the artists to help uh, make really exciting creative projects happen. Yeah. So what does the music industry in the Miami area look like in comparison to other parts of the country, like, you know, the the Austin scene or the Nashville scene? I mean, I know those are the really big ones or, you know, New York, L.A., things like that. Is Miami, does it have its own pretty sizable, like, you know, are there are there publishers there? Are there management groups there? Um, what does that look like in your neck of the woods? I would imagine, I mean, Almost every major label and publisher has a presence in Miami. Most of it caters toward the Latin market. You know, Sony's Latin division is in Miami. Universal's Latin division is in Miami. Those publishing companies are in Miami uh, just because you want to have access to that market. And it's sort of the gateway to all of Latin America. But you know, those those uh, those labels are still doing, you know, those Miami labels are still doing things in the Anglo market as well. And you're mm-hmm. seeing, uh, you know, a lot of cross pollination, which makes it pretty exciting. But yeah, it's it's a there's a huge industry presence down here. Uh, there's you know yeah labels, publishers, live performance companies, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of tech companies. You're starting to see make a presence down here. I think now that work has become more remote and and less detached from physical places than it used to, people are realizing, man, it's a lot more, it's a lot nicer to work where it's 72 degrees in February. So let's move some of our operations down to South Florida. And we're seeing a lot of uh, entertainment and entertainment tech companies and just generally tech companies finding their way down here, which is a pretty exciting prospect. It's going to be cool to see where Miami is in that regard, even just five years from now. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious. Um, so we, we started our podcast actually, uh, right after COVID began. And that's why I often like to start with where people, what, what people are doing at this current moment in time, because it was so different than when, what they would typically be doing. But, um, I, you know, with COVID, uh, I know at least from, our, our perspective in Wisconsin, there were a lot of musicians who just kind of up and, and moved south like because yeah. they could get regular work year round during that time period. Um, and, and, you know, when all the, the doors were closed, um, you know, you could still get work uh, in the summers here, but but not year round um, because of COVID. So, I mean, did you see an influx in Florida of uh, musicians moving down there or did you notice anything different? I, I think you you see both sides in terms of things that encourage people to come down here, especially creative professionals, but some things that probably discourage them as well. Mm. For one thing, on on the side of kind of bringing people into Florida, uh, the pandemic sort of never really existed in Florida. It existed, obviously, but the government and business community sort of, you know, covered their ears and their eyes and just pretended COVID never happened. And so you didn't see a lot in the way of lockdowns or restrictions. And so that perhaps maybe brought some business activity down here that wouldn't have come down here otherwise. And people wanted to come down here to find a warmer environment. And so I'm with you on, in some respect on that, probably brought some people down to Florida and South Florida in the creative community. Uh, What I think worked against that is just how expensive the cost of living has gotten down here. Just in the last couple of years, the real estate market, which has obviously gone up across the board throughout the country, has gotten particularly pronounced in South Florida and particularly Miami. And I don't think that's been conducive to a lot of creative professionals 
especially independent professionals who are still trying to get their career going to be able to come down here and make this the place where they're going to build their music career. Because again, it's very expensive to live here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. Very true. Uh, yeah. Thank you for, for giving the perspective on that. And, and yes, th- now that you say that, I do remember hearing that, that, yeah, COVID well, wasn't, you know, wasn't as yeah. big of a thing down there. So, well, and, and it reflects a lot in my client base, by the way. So really? I'm based in Miami, Florida, and I ha- certainly have lots of clients here, but I'm also licensed to practice in a number of different states. Mm-hmm. And so I, and and because of the way I work, which is remotely, my office is my home. My clients are all over the place. I have clients in California. I got clients in DC. I got clients in New York. I have clients who are maybe residents of Florida who have picked up stakes and are somewhere else temporarily. And one week they might be in North Carolina. One week they might be in Vegas because they're kind of going where the work is. And I'm following them there virtually because wherever they are, there's a contract or something that needs to be reviewed or looked at. And so I'm I'm sort of their virtual lawyer, <laughs> uh, virtually in their trunk as they're driving from one place to another. And, you know, so my clients are everywhere and I try to be everywhere for them uh, virtually. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, I, I don't know how you keep up with everything, everything everywhere, but, uh, but you do a great job. <laughs> that makes and, two of us. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, so going, going back to the, uh, um, to the, you know, the, what you know and what you, what you've done and how you got into the music industry. So I know you're talking about just being around it, enjoying being, you know, working with the musicians and creatives, uh, and, and, and assisting them with that. Um, how did you actually start learning? Was it just being, you know, kind of that on the job training from when you were doing the the work with your, your friends in the bands, or was there something bigger than that, that really inspired you to get into it? I would say it was probably three things. Uh, My first exposure to learning this business was really self-teaching myself. Mm -hmm. When I was in high school, I came to the conclusion pretty early on that I wanted to do something in the entertainment industry space. I wasn't sure if I was going to be the next Clive Davis or L.A. Reid running a record label or if I was going to be a music manager, kind of managing artists, or if I was going to be an entertainment lawyer or something, but, or maybe a TV producer. I just knew I wanted to be somewhere in this field because I thought it was so cool to be around artists. And, and so I, once I realized like it wasn't going to happen on the creative side, you know, I had to figure out the business side. And so Mm -hmm. I self-taught, I, you know, I didn't just read the Passman book. The Passman book was just the first book. I then read every book I could find about the music industry. I read, I would read every issue of Billboard and Variety cover to cover. I used to have to tuck it into my textbooks so I could read it during class without the teacher knowing. But the problem is those <laughs> old billboard magazines were so damn big that the they would stick out past the textbook. And so I'd always get caught. But, you know, these, these, these kids today with their digital editions, they don't realize the struggle that we went through right, uh, right. not that long ago, you know, say you're dating yourself 2003. <laughs> um, yeah. But, and, you know, the, the more I studied, the more I found it fascinating. And so I would, you know, just keep reading and reading and, uh, I would find, I find myself like really impressing much older people in the industry that were like, how does this 17 year old kid, uh, know how like complex royalty calculations work? How do they, how does this 17 year old kid know how to read a record deal better than my associates do? And it's because I, you know, I self-taught and I was really passionate about it. Uh, from there, once I was able to actually get some formal education on the subject in college and law school, that was big for me. You know, I mm-hmm. took some entertainment industry classes when I was an undergrad at the University of Miami 
in law school, I was able to take some entertainment industry classes in entertainment law, copyright, trademark, even took a fashion law course, which was super important. Uh, uh, you know, like I, I didn't think at the time, wow, many of my entertainment industry clients are actually interested in fashion, and want to learn more about this. I just needed three more credits and it was the only class available at the time, but it was one of the smartest classes I took because I'm using it all the time. And, and so that formal education was helpful. And then after that, the third thing was just getting experience as a lawyer. Um, mm -hmm. I, I thought that maybe someday, maybe five, 10 years after practicing, I would finally get to do some entertainment work. And I thought I'd have to pay my dues in another area of law first as, as many entertainment lawyers have to do. But I sort of got pretty lucky that clients were coming to me and I had the opportunity to write this break the business book where I you know, wrote about record deals and more clients came in. And then I got the radio show and more clients came in. And so I got to kind of be an entertainment lawyer much quicker than I thought. And mm -hmm. I got to learn a lot while I was uh, serving clients and, and building that legal practice of mine. And, you know, and I'm still learning. I mean, any mm -hmm. any entertainment lawyer, any lawyer who tells you they have it all figured out, that's a lawyer you want to stay away from. There's a reason why they call what we do practice, right? It's a craft. You're constantly learning. Much how musicians have to practice every day, even the very best ones. And, you know, so I, I'm, I'm still learning. I'm still reading books. I'm still reading articles. I'm still, you know, going through law journals, trying to pick up the latest techniques because this stuff's really exciting to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and I can tell. And also like it's, it really shows in your podcast and, and in your book. And I was going to ask you, uh, when did you put out the book and when did you start your podcast? So the book came out around 2015. So okay. about, so this is about maybe three years into practicing and I was starting to serve some entertainment clients and I found myself getting sort of crushed by emotionally, by the fact that most of the work I was doing on the entertainment side was reading record deals. Mm -hmm. uh, a client would come to me and say, Hey, I got this record deal. Uh, can you read it for me and make sure it's okay? I would read it. It would be terrible. Record deals are super exploitative. I've yet to read a single one in my life that I would ever recommend that a client sign. And I would tell an artist, you can't sign this. And they would say, well, can you fix it? I was like, no, you don't have any leverage. Uh, maybe we can nibble at the edges and make it slightly better. But the, the contract itself is fundamentally a problem. They're taking, they're going to take your work. You're not going to own your masters. They're going to pay you a tiny little royalty that you'll never be able to pay back. And you're, you're going to get crushed under the weight of this thing. And then they would sign it anyway, because, you know, artists want to be right. superstars and, and, it, and then it would never work out. And just after, after having this happen time and time again, I was like, all right, I need to, I need to warn the people. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote this book, break the business, basically telling artists don't sign record deals. And here's why. And then I also interviewed a bunch of independent creators who achieved success and sort of, and then in the book was able to write, and here's how you do it without signing a record deal. Here's how you build a career on your own terms and keep your masters and keep your money. And, you know, the book, uh, came from there. And I think, you know, to me, one of the biggest lessons for myself from writing that book that I like to impart to others is that book actually taught me a lot about the industry. Like a lot of artists have come to me and said, oh, break the business taught me, uh, you know, more about the music industry. And I said, it did the same thing for me. Mm -hmm. To me, the second best way to learn something is to read a book. The best way to learn something is to write a book. And that book just kind of from, you know, all the research I had to do for that, all the interviews I had to do that, do for that, just put me on a whole other level in terms of understanding this stuff. And 
well, after I wrote that book, I had artists who would read it and then just send me some questions. Oh, what about this? What about this? Uh, what about this situation I'm having? And I was trying to answer them all back with emails and I was getting more emails than I had time to answer. And I was like, there's gotta be a faster way to answer these questions. And so I created a podcast where I would talk about the questions people answered and, you know, help to demystify the music industry. And that was in 2016, I think. Okay. And from there, it you know it sort of just begat this broader podcast where we would interview guests each week, and uh, you know, we, and then after a while, it sort of devolved or evolved, however you want to look into it, <laughs> as to something where we also talk about pop culture and sports, and you know, we're going to talk about the Grammy Awards on this week's show. So sure. we keep it lighthearted and fun because nobody just likes to hear information all day. And eventually we, uh, we were able to get onto Sirius XM and we got that, you know, that radio show. And so now it's a radio show and a podcast and it's a live stream and it's just, it's built a really cool community. And it's, and, and you know, this from, you know, hosting these shows, it's just really fun to have that community and to know that you're helping them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been fun to watch. And, and even in the short amount of time that I've been kind of following what you're doing, it's definitely grown substantially. And, um, and now you have, you have all these, like, um, uh, what would you call them? Like, um, assistants or, um, uh, other people working with you on the podcast that are kind of almost <laughs> like that Howard Stern, like, you know, like that, uh, they're just adding the, the color commentary yeah. along with, with your program. Are, are they, and are they there regularly now at this point? Yeah, so the the show has a rotating group of co-hosts. Mm-hmm. Co-hosts, that's right. Yeah, and, and we also have my producer, my sister Lauren, who's a you know terrific right. entertainment industry professional in her own right. She produces the show every week for us, but we have co-hosts who come in each week. I, I sort of went out of my way to bring in a diverse set of perspectives and life experiences, mm-hmm. uh, both demographically and professionally. One of the guests is a working musician. The other one is an artist coach. The other one is a professional voiceover artist and a PhD academic in sociology. And so we we bring in, and then we always have like random co-hosts that pop in because I don't just want the community to hear from me every week. If if they're only hearing from me, they're only getting one perspective and it's a, you know, gonna be a narrow perspective just because of my own experience as opposed mm-hmm. to bringing in all these other experiences. And so I would be doing the audience a disservice if I was the only voice they heard every week. And so I bring in other voices and mainly it's nice to have somebody else to talk to. Talking yeah. by yourself for an hour is a, it's not that entertaining. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. And, and that's why maybe one of the reasons I've, I've just kind of glommed onto how you work is because you're also a very community minded type of person and, and that shows through in, in your podcast as well as, as some of the other things you do. And you even started, um, I don't, I don't know if you can really speak to this, um, but you've, you've worked on some mentorship opportunities and, uh, other types of things. I, I, is that something that you can tell more about right now or is, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, tease a little bit for in the distant, in the, in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would love to talk about this. It's a big, it's a big part of just my, my whole philosophy, right? When I'm, when I'm not practicing law or talking way too much on a radio show. (laughs) I'm also a teacher like you. And I I teach at the college level. I mentor, you know, young people. I I teach at a couple colleges here in South Florida. And I, I I feel this drive to want to help the next generation. I, I got to where I was because there were people old, you know, when I was a kid who were willing to answer my emails when I, wanted to learn more about the music industry. And I didn't know anybody in my family who worked in it. And we need those people. And I think Mm -hmm. when you 
get to a certain level in this business, you almost have a an ethical obligation to kind of reach your hand out toward that next generation and pull a few people up and make the make the journey up a little bit easier for them than it was for you. And so I've spent the last couple of years trying to figure out ways to make that mentoring process more effective for the people getting mentored, but also more effective for the people doing the mentoring. I think, you know, you and you are a great example of this. You know, most most professionals who work in our industry, they want to mentor. They want to have conversations with young people. It feels really good when somebody reaches out to you and says, hey, you're doing what I'm doing and what I think you're doing is so cool. Can you tell me how you got there? Like, how how does that not put a smile on your face? Mm -hmm. Like, what a great endorsement of whatever you're doing. And so you want to help those people, but you're also sort of volunteering your time. So there has to be a way that we can make that process easier and so that it doesn't require 15 emails back and forth. So that when it's over, you, you've you created this more valuable relationship that's going to persist long after that conversation. And so I've been talking a lot with um, some, some venture capitalists and some programmers, developers in how we can, how we can operationalize that. And I think in the next few months, I think we're going to have something uh, with our team that's going to be pretty valuable in that regard. And I'm excited to see it come together just because I think it's going to do a lot of good uh, for the people that are being mentored and also the people doing the mentoring. Yeah. Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah. I can't wait to find out how it all goes for you. And yeah, okay, that just, makes two of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's going to be amazing. Oh, and, and so I just want to ask you, you know, from, from your time working in the industry, uh, what are, what have been some of the biggest challenges that you've come across um, in your particular work? Wow. The biggest challenges that I have come across Oh man, I, I think, I think it's just sort of reconciling with the growing role of technology and wow. how to use it to our advantage and not sort of get caught up in the undertow of it. And I'm not one of these Luddites who is anti-technology, especially in the entertainment business. I wrote, you know, the, the a big part of the Break the Business book is all about how the reason why indie creators can do it without a record label these days is because of technology. When you and I were little kids and none of this stuff existed, there was no iTunes, there was no distro kid, there was no Facebook, no social media you know there was re- there wasn't really a mechanism for an independent creator to achieve success without a label right because there was no way if you lived in florida to get your music in a store in alaska <laughs> unless you worked with a label that had a distribution network that could get your music in trucks all the way to target and so but but now technology's leveled that playing field and so i'm grateful for technology but a big struggle that i have and a big struggle that creative professionals have in general is now that we have this technology, how do we use it in a way that doesn't get us swallowed up? And I think social media is a great example. Uh, social media has given you as an artist a access to an entire world of promotion. You can promote your music to anyone, anywhere in the world. You didn't used to be able to do that when you and I were growing up. Now you know. Now you can just as easily reach somebody in Japan as you can reach somebody across the street from you. And that's great. And you have that. But you know who also has that? 
everybody. It is, you know, it's truly democratized promotion such that Twitter now is basically just this echo chamber where we're all shouting into the void. And there's so many voices that we've all kind of stopped listening. And it's hard for a new voice to cut through that clutter and reach that person in Japan who might be interested in your music because there's so many voices out there who are trying to reach that voice, that person in Japan and everybody else. And I don't think we've quite yet figured out how to address that, how to fix that, how to make all of the voices kind of be targeted to the people where you are actually receptive to your voice. And I think some algorithm driven social platforms are getting a little bit better at that. I think TikTok has shown some promise in terms of organic engagement. I think there are some creators who have been able to find their communities uh, and TikTok has helped them find those communities. But again, even that platform is starting to get saturated now and it's not as effective at that as it used to maybe be 12 months or 24 months ago. And we need to figure out how to how to work with that and, and what technology is going to do there because it is both the greatest promise that we have in this industry, but also the greatest uh, problem that we have to deal with. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great answer, and thank you for explaining all of that. Do you do you find it difficult yourself? And you are very savvy to so much of the technology, but do you find it yourself um, difficult to stay on top of? You know the the changing trends. Um, although you seem of the people I know, you seem to be very much at the forefront of what's what what is changing. But um, is that hard for of, you to do? Of course, it is <laughs> excruciating. It is so, so challenging, especially, I mean, like Twitter itself is the best example of this. I mean, something has happened to that platform in the last three to four months. I'm not going to mention the name <laughs> of the person who's taken it over that might be responsible for it because I just don't need that smoke in my life because there are some people who are very big fans of his. But whatever the reason, that platform has changed and the things you have to do to be successful and get engagement on that platform have either changed or perhaps have just become more difficult, if not impossible, which is you know tough for me because that platform was sort of my lifeline and my connection to the industry. So now I have to find different connections to the industry. I have to adapt. And I, I've sort of done that recently. I've created a TikTok profile and have you know made stuff on TikTok. And, and there's a lot of promise there. I'm finding a community there, which is very cool. I'm, you know, I'm getting engagement there that I, I've been having trouble finding on Twitter in the last few weeks. And, but it's a challenge for me to kind of just stay on top of everything. And even just staying on top of the trends in the industry generally is harder as I get older. And it, it's just, it's something that we all have to uh, reckon with, but it, it hit me so hard. I don't, I think this episode's coming out a little later than we're recording this, but I can tell you, um, it's hit me hard, particularly in the last couple of days with the Grammys that have come out recently. Mm -hmm. So the Grammys just had their telecast as we record this yesterday. And this was the first time in my life that I didn't recognize any of the names of the nominees for best new artist. That has never happened to me before. Like I'm even, even in my age, like I still pride myself on being able to stay on top of the music industry. But I read the 10, 10 nominees now for Best New Artist. I didn't recognize a single one. Okay, I recognized Monoskin because I'm a big fan of Eurovision. Mm -hmm. But the other nine, nothing. And 
I mean, I felt like that that meme of, uh, you know, Steve Buscemi holding the skateboard saying, how do you do, fellow kids? Like, I it just, <laughs> I feel like I aged 20 years just looking at that list. And and so and that's the biggest challenge for entertainment industry professionals in my line of work. We have to stay on top of the industry, but eventually you just get old. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and you that, know what? And that gets tough. Yeah. You are a, a relatively new father, though. Um, how How old is your little boy? Six months old. Six months. And I, am I correct? Little boy, correct? Little boy, you got it. Okay. Um, I mean, as he gets older and starts listening to music of his own, you, all of a sudden you're going to be in the know again. <laughs> uh, I do think you have that to look forward to. Because um, being around kids, I mean, they, all of a sudden you're at the, you know, you're on top of the, the trends again. And uh, for me, working with um, private students, um, I'm always asking them, okay, what, what's happening? What are, who are you uh, listening to and how? <laughs> like, and, and they're the ones who keep me current more than anyone else. Um, and so, uh, yeah, having, having that kid and having his friends around, oh my gosh, it's going to change your world. <laughs> I'm going to have to start leaning on my college students. I think that's there you go. Yep. I'm going to be like, if you want extra credit, just send me your Spotify playlist, please. It's amazing. Exactly. (laughs) I know it's, it's an untapped resource that a a lot of people don't really think about. Yeah. It's, it's a lot more than just a classroom. Yeah. (laughs) And, and by the way, for the young people listening, like this isn't judgment on you, right? I'm not one of these, I'm not trying to be one of these old people. That's like, Oh, your music's not as good as my music. No, no, no. Your music's damn good. Every time, like I listen to one of these young artists I've never heard of, it's really incredible music, well-written, well-produced. Like when I say I've never heard of these nominees, like that's on me. Right. (laughs) Like, Like that's an indictment on me. I need to get better at this because the stuff that the Gen Z kids are producing is incredible. Yeah. It's just a matter of the circles that the, the younger folks are hanging out with are not the same, you know, we're not getting the same, uh, you know, social media filters or algorithms that they are. And and so we're just not finding it as easily. So, um, but yeah, absolutely. I agree with you a hundred percent on that. So, um, yeah, no, it's yeah. Yeah. Gotta, gotta keep us, uh, what's the, what's the correct word for cool right now? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I'm the guy to ask the guy who can't name a single nominee for best new artist. You're the one I want. Yeah. Come to me about street slang. That'll, that'll work out well for you. You know what I have to do? I have to just re-enroll in undergrad, just get another bachelor's degree and go back to working at my college radio station, which is what I did. I was, I was never more cool in terms of my music taste. Oh my gosh. From 2004 to like 2006 or 2007, when I was a DJ at my college radio station, man, the the the, the artists I could name, like just and like knowing the deep cuts and everything, like oh that that was oh, that was my prime. This I got is amazing. I, uh, so, what was your show called? Oh well, I mean, I think I mean it was it was college radio, so I was just like a regular rotation oh, okay. DJ. So just whatever was whatever was like in the cabinet that I had to play because it was whatever was on the top of the CMJ charts at the time. Got it. And, and that was really like my, like frozen in time. Like that was my era of music. Like I, you know, just like the postal service and mates of state and, you know, Ivy and, you know, Wilco, just the Smiths, like all these kind of bands just like stayed with me and, you know, God. loved, loved, loved the shins. Oh my God. I just, oh, 
I, you know, like that's, that's what I got to do. I'm just going to, I'm just going to get another bachelor's degree. I'm going to go back to my college radio station and just play music. <laughs> and then, and then I'll be cool again. There you go. You could show up and volunteer and be like, Hey, I'm here. And, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm Ryan. I'd like to uh, stay hip and <laughs> please just let me in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I had a college radio show too. Um, and, of course. but yeah, <laughs> Naturally, but it wasn't, it wasn't nearly as cool as yours. And, you know, and thinking back, that was a lost opportunity as well. Like we, uh, uh, it was a friend in my, uh, myself and we called ourselves, uh, we, we didn't think of a name. They asked us for a name for the show and we weren't prepared, prepared for that. So we just called it the ABC show, Allie and Becca confused. And, um, <laughs> and we just did like, uh, eighties and nineties, eighties music primarily. So, uh, nothing that would keep us on trend because it was already quite old at that point in time. So <laughs> we had a mandatory Madonna every, <laughs> like, every Oh, nice. Yeah, that was well, that's cool that your station lets you play that kind of stuff because ours was like ours was like super college musicy where it's like uh, you cannot play anything that's ever been top 40 ever. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Ours, yeah, good old WVUR in uh Valparaiso. Yeah, they they pretty much let us do what we wanted. Yeah. Not many nice. people listen to that thing, I'll be honest. So well, and, and that was the other thing, right? Like college radio towers never go that far. Right. <laughs> And so like every once in a while I'd play something I wasn't supposed to play and I'd get like an angry phone call from the you know station director like you can't play that song I'm just like it's 3:30 in the morning in Coral Gables Florida zero people are listening to this right now just just let me play the song I want to hear Oh my like God. I'm literally the station's only listener at this moment That's 100% hilarious. of our listeners right now want to hear this song That's hilarious Just giving oh, the people man. what they want <laughs> Oh man, I, 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 you got to find archives on that. We got to bring that back and put that in show notes or something. Um, <laughs> that's amazing. I love hearing about that. I, I do um, miss it a lot. The uh, every once in a while, the radio station will email the old DJs and say that they're, you know, they'll invite us back to host our own radio show for homecoming. I oh, always really? do that. Absolutely. Oh, that's great. And they, they let us play all the old music. Uh, of course it always makes you feel like it, it makes you feel bad. Cause it's like, Oh, uh, you know, do you have the postal service? And they're like, yeah, it's in the, it's in the way back. And they have to like, you know, they have to go to like the, uh, dust it know, off. like massive archives, like blow the dust off. Yep. <laughs> no oh one has God. opened this compact disc in a thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> and it will absolutely skip. Cause they also have to like, oh. op- they, they have to like take the drapes or the blanket off of the CD player. That's not even <laughs> plugged in anymore. Cause they don't use CD players anymore. <laughs> Oh, oh, the things that, yeah. And it will oh. abs- and the track absolutely skips. Of course it does. Of course it does. Because it was used for Frisbee more than it was for music, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Oh, that was a fun little uh, walk down memory lane. Um, <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> yes. Next question I had on my agenda here is, what is the greatest lesson you've ever learned along the way in your career in music? Oh man, I got this one at the ready. This is yeah. such a good piece of advice that I think works just as well for law and entertainment law as it does for creative professionals. And it is as follows. I think my dad told me this and it's just stayed with me ever since. If you wait until you are a hundred percent ready to take an opportunity, you will lose that opportunity to somebody who is 80% ready and is willing to learn the rest on the job. 
Oh my God. And this like, because imposter syndrome will do this to you, right? Where you will, you will never start something because you're, oh, if I don't hundred percent know how to do it, I'm just not going to do it. And you'll wait until you're hundred percent ready. And then meanwhile, you're never going to be hundred percent ready. I'm still not hundred percent ready to be an entertainment lawyer, you know, cause it's, you can never be perfect at it. The day I, you know, I became an entertainment lawyer that the day I decided, you know what? I want to start having some entertainment clients. I think I know enough about this and whatever I don't know, I'm confident that I'm going to be able to figure out. And that just opened all kinds of doors for me. And obviously, you know, you, you got to work hard. You have to make yourself ready for the opportunities uh, once you get started, but don't wait. If there's something you want, go after it and go get it and have the confidence in yourself that by the time the time comes for you to have to pull the trigger on something, you're going to be ready. And if you let imposter syndrome kick in, you're going to miss opportunities because here's the dirty little secret. And I, and I think you, you can attest to this. Everybody has imposter syndrome from, from like the lowliest employee working the mailroom at a record label to freaking Clive Davis. Everybody is afraid that they don't measure up. Everybody thinks that they don't have the skill set. Everybody is looking at somebody else and saying, I wish I could be as good at this as that person is. If you're looking at me and saying, man, I wish I could be the kind of entertainment lawyer Ryan Carella is, I'm looking at 10 other entertainment lawyers and saying the same thing. Like we all think that we don't measure up. And the moment that you can just kind of ignore that voice in your head and just decide that you're going to be the person you want to be and start moving down that path, that's when the door is open for you. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's true for entertainers as well, you know, to, cause you know, you're, 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 you know, you're, you're going to say to yourself, oh, I could never be as good as that artist that I see on TV, or I'm never going to be able to perform as well as that person I'm seeing in the club. And the answer is why not? You know, there's, um, you know, and take it from somebody who has helped a lot of really mediocre performers achieve incredible success. And I'm, and I'm not hating on those people, by the way, because right. they're good at what they need to be good at, which is, you know, not just the talent side of it, but just having confidence, learning the business, learning how to navigate things in the industry. So a C plus talent who works hard and learns the industry is always going to go further than an A plus talent who can't do the other stuff. I think the minimum amount of talent that you need to be an industry success, a lot of people that you that are listening to this show probably have it. Like, you know, I, you know, I, I maybe go as far to say maybe 95 to 100 percent of the people listening to your show who are musicians probably already have the minimum talent level or at least the potential to have the talent level required for industry success. But they have to learn the other stuff. They have to do the other stuff. Yeah. Oh man, that is some really, really good advice. Um, and, and I, I see it, I see it with a lot of the musicians that we work with. Absolutely. Um, I see it around us, uh, not, you know, with all sorts of other, other folks. I mean, not just in the music industry, but that's where I definitely, um, you know, I'm, I'm most, um, in, you know, where, where I am and, and I see exactly what you're saying. I see, definitely some musicians who are making some really good money they're making full-time livings doing music that aren't de definitely aren't the strongest musicians out there but they're making it and they are they're killing it and and other people are like how are they how how is that person up there um but they are as because of the work ethic and and the the taking up opportunities and i i love that statement um and i think the ability to connect 
with your audience mm-hmm. and to have something to say mm-hmm. matters. I mean, nobody would call Bob Dylan the most technically skilled musician they have seen, but you, most people would rather see Dylan in concert than, you know, the, you know, the first chair at like a Philharmonic orchestra play the violin, even though that, 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 uh, that violinist is better at what they do technically than Bob Dylan is at singing and playing guitar. You're going to have a better show with Dylan because of the message and how he connects with audiences. Like if it was just about technical skill, then the valedictorian of every music conservatory in the United mm-hmm, States mm-hmm. would be the biggest stars in the music industry, would be winning all the Grammys at the Grammy Awards that I was watching last night. But it's more than that. And there, you know, there's, you know, there's so many other things that go into being a generational talent than just talent. Yeah, yeah, so true. Couldn't agree more. And that was your dad who said that initially? Well, the, the 80%, 100% thing was my yes, dad. All, yes. all that other stuff was just me riffing. Oh, of course. Yes, yes. But the, <laughs> but yeah. no, no. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, I haven't heard it said that way before. So I, I like that. Um, very, very good stuff. And um, of all the different podcast guests and uh, and now radio show guests and and people that you interviewed for your book and all the all the many entertainers you've come across along the way, people in the business in general, are who are some of the most memorable? Can you speak to that? Oh wow! Uh, I mean, you got to understand. I think we've I think we just finished taping our three hundred and sixty first episode. Wow. Uh, you know, we've been we've been at this for like six, seven, eight years now, and so and so many guests. I've probably interviewed at least 250 to 300 guests. And each of them is, you know, was incredible and powerful in their own way. I mean, there, there's certainly a few who stick out. I mean, the first time that I interviewed a Grammy winner was a guy named Tim Kubart, who uh, was won the Grammy award for best children's album. You, you might also know him as uh, one of the members of Postmodern Jukebox. He's the guy that enthusiastically hits the tambourine. I think they call him Tambourine Guy. Everybody loves Tambourine Guy. But when I heard Tim Kubart tell me the story of winning that Grammy Award and how it was with an album that he made in his one-bedroom apartment in New York, that was the first time I'd ever hear, heard something like that. Before I heard that story, I just, you know, oh, every Grammy Award-winning record has to be made in a space-age studio that is you know, sealed off with like the fancy sound and like the Star Trek Enterprise looking console with all the faders going up and down. And this guy was in his apartment and it won a Grammy and it's a great children's album. And to me, it was, that was just such a big shift. I was like, oh my God, all the stuff that I talked about in my book, there it is there, you know, and that was, by the way, somebody who could have just said, oh, I'm never going to win a Grammy. I can't afford studio time in a fancy studio somewhere. So I'm just not even going to try. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness he didn't listen to that side of himself. Thank goodness he said, look, once I've just like the only thing that matters in terms of me deciding whether I'm going to go win a Grammy is once I made the decision to do it. And once mm-hmm. he said that, he was off to the races and he did what he had to do, including making an album in his um, in his apartment. And I, I, I've heard about artists making albums on their phone with GarageBand, like not even a really good DAW, just like the kind of standard one that comes with every Mac. And they make these amazing albums just singing into their phone and they can do it. And because, because again, uh, technology has leveled the playing field with that regard. And so those are my favorite stories are the people who, the creative professionals who have done 
incredible things, have climbed, you know, the highest peaks and have done it with a shoestring budget, no resources, no industry support, just uh, whatever they had in front of them and their own gumption. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they have the drive. They have the drive. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great story. And then uh, the last question that I have is, uh, what advice would you give to those working to be musicians uh, currently in the industry right now? Oh, gosh. See, this isn't fair because this is actually the last question or it's similar to the last question I asked on my show. And <laughs> I've asked it to like 300 people who have been guests. And when it comes to me, I'm not sure how to answer it. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> yeah, yeah well, you think you would think I'd have plenty of time to think about it. But uh, the, you can the steal some of their answers. That's fine. <laughs> I'll probably, that's, how would you know I didn't? Um, I think the, the piece of advice I would give to them is to develop that hustle gene. Um, a talent, as we previously mentioned, is not a, you know, being the best talent and having the most technical skill is not a prerequisite to achieving the kind of success you want to achieve. But Almost always, with very few exceptions that I've encountered in my own work, have people been able to get there without hard work and without, you know, this is you know, what I call a hustle gene, right? And, and, and I hate that it's, a, you know, to call it a gene because that would suggest that like either you have it or you don't. But I think there are certain people where just the switch goes off in their head where they just know they have an instinct on I need to get this done. I need to do this. I need to go, go, go. Um, if somebody says no, I'm going to find the yes somewhere else. If I can't do it that way, I'm going to find to do it another way. If, uh, if I get stuck, I'm not going to stay stuck. And, you know, I'm not going to blame my, I'm, I'm not going to blame everybody else. I'm not going to say, well, this doesn't work. I quit. And I think those are the different, that those tend to be the people who achieve more success often, despite their talent. They, I think a, a lot of what makes people successful entrepreneurs outside of music have this skill as well, right? Successful entrepreneurs, they make things happen even without a budget, uh, even without a team, even without resources. They have an idea, they have passion, they have drive. And so I find a lot of similarities between the people who achieve the most success in entrepreneurship as the ones who achieve the most success in art. So maybe spend time around entrepreneurs, see what makes them tick, see how they solve problems and try to adopt that entrepreneurial mindset about your career. Don't wait for somebody to make that success happen for you. Uh, I can always tell when an artist is going to most likely fail. It's when they say something like, man, once I can get a manager to, you know, make me famous, it's over for y'all. I'm going to be a huge success. There, there is no shortcut, right? There is a role for managers in the music industry. And, but oftentimes the place for a manager is to help you manage your success once you have it. It is not, they are not there to help you create success that doesn't yet exist. When I see people get exploited by managers, those tend to be the people where it happens. It's a manager who finds somebody when they're at zero and they will, you know, say, oh, this, uh, I'll do whatever this manager says. You want, you want to control my bank accounts? You want to make all my decisions for me? You want to control my life for me? Okay. Just let me know what to do. Oh no, I've been exploited. It's almost as if giving somebody all my money and all my control means that stuff will be taken from me. Yeah, that'll happen. Um, the, the place for a manager is when you built your success and you need somebody to help you manage it. So you don't wait for somebody to help you find that success. You find it on your own 
and you work towards it. And then the people that will help you get to the next level from there, they'll find you. You'll find, and you'll interact with those people out into the world, but don't wait for them like a, like, you know, a, a damsel in distress waiting for the, the gallant knight to come to your castle and, you know, save you from the dragon. That ain't how it works in this business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Such great advice. Thank you so much. Uh, is there anything that we didn't talk about here today that you wanted to mention? Oh, just to, just to mention that, you know, how much I am so grateful for anybody who gives their life, even part of their life to creating art. It makes life worth living. And I, I get a lot of joy out of helping creative professionals because I know I'm playing a small part in putting beautiful things out into the world. And you don't have to be a full-time musician or a full-time artist or a full-time creative professional to make a big impact. A lot of my clients in my entertainment practice, Allison, are not full-time creators. They are doctors, lawyers, business people, accountants who do this on the side. And, and that's okay. And in fact, that's great because, uh, I, some of the unhappiest people I know are people who are full-time creators. Sometimes, you know, I, I did a TikTok about this, and this is going to be such a controversial thing when I say it, but sometimes, you know, this idea of following your passion can be very destructive advice to give to somebody. You know, the idea that because we love something more than anything else in the world, we have to make it our career. That sounds like a pretty good way to hate the thing you love the most in the world, right? Oh, what do you love most in the world? Let's make that your job. <laughs> Let's make that the thing that you literally have to do to survive or you can't pay your rent. That sounds like a really good way to hate the thing that you love the most in the world. So if your job, like let's say you really love making music, you don't have to have that be your job full time if, if, uh, if that's not your path for success. If you're doing something else that you like, <laughs> that you can tolerate, that you're good at, that makes you money. And then you can do the passion project, the music, the art on the side to enrich your soul, to make you a happier person, to give your, to allow your creative juices to flow so you can do your day job better. That's okay. That's still success. You know, that, you know, and some of the happiest people I know are people who do that, who are people who, uh, find what they're good at, who follow their success instead of following their passion. And, you know, using the, the, the connections that they, you know, create from that, the money that they make from that to enrich their artistic endeavors. Um, I, I'll, I'll give you an example of this because this is something I, I feel very strongly about because I think we, we often, we so too often tell people that like, if you're an artist and you're not making a living from your art full time, that you failed as an artist or that you haven't achieved your full potential as an artist. And that's just not true for a lot of people. Like the best place for your art might be as a side project to whatever you do every day to make a living, to like allow you to eat and pay your rent or your mortgage while you still have the ability and time to do that side project. And that's perfectly okay. But, uh, and sometimes ironically enough, uh, by following your success, instead of following your passion, you actually wind up achieving your passion anyway. So, um, and it actually can be a faster track to getting to your passion than just by following your passion. Mm -hmm. So in the TikTok video, I talk about a client of mine 
who really loves making movies, right? He's very passionate about movies. He loves producing movies. And so he could have done what a lot of people want to do when they want to be film producers, right? Is I'm going to go to film school and then I'm going to take a crappy unpaid internship at some production company where I'm making $0 an hour. In fact, I'm making negative dollars because I got to pay for my own parking on the lot and pay my dues and work my way up the ladder and get exploited and you know, get into the rat race uh, with everybody else trying to be a movie producer. And maybe in 20 or 30 years, I'll finally get that opportunity. He could have done that. But instead he said, you know, I'm good at real estate. You know, it's not my passion, but I'm good at it. And mm -hmm. so he went into real estate and he was really good at it. And he made a lot of money and he built a lot of businesses and he became very, very successful. And you know what all that success got him? Into the room with a bunch of elites in across various industries, including entertainment. He got to meet movie stars and film producers. And when the next project came up for when a movie was being created, guess who they went to to make him a producer on that project? Him. He would have never gotten into those rooms if he didn't build success outside of the film business. So sometimes following your success as opposed to following your passion can be the quickest path to getting to your passion anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And Thank I know we went super that. off track there, but no, I, it's, no. it's such an important insight to me. That is, that is really important to hear. I think so many of us are stuck on that thought that we have to do, uh, we have to do music because it's a passion. We have to do it full time because it's our, it's because there's nothing else we can see ourselves doing, but, but yeah, there, there's definitely other, there's room for other things and, and, and maybe not for everyone, but, um, but for those, who, those who are, uh, strong in other skills. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and by the way, like there's plenty of people I know who are full-time creators who, yes. who love it. They are the, you know, I, I can't see, you know, they, they say what you said, like, I literally can't do anything else. I can't see myself doing anything else and being happy. And I, and there are people where that's absolutely the case. I do think there, though, there are people who say that who just haven't like seen other things. Like, right. are you sure that's really what you mean? Or like, have you just never worked in any other industry yeah. before. <laughs> Cause like, you know, you might be surprised. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you so much for, for talking about it that way. And that was really important to hear. Um, and also, I mean, to just to wrap things up then, where can we find you? Uh, how can we follow you, Ryan Carella? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R. Um, and you can check me out on TikTok at Rye the Law Guy. Uh, you can go to breakthebusiness.com to check out the podcast. Also, ryancarella.com for my personal website. And, you know, just check out Break the Business on all major podcast platforms, live streaming platforms, and on SiriusXM 145. Um, I think I'm on LinkedIn too. You can go visit me there and see, you know, my 14,000 different job titles. <laughs> Wherever you want to connect, I'd be thrilled to connect with you. Great. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on today's episode. It's always a treat to talk with you. And um, thank you so much for what you do for, for musicians in, uh, in our corner of the industry here. So have a wonderful rest of your day. It's an honor. Thank you, Allison. Thanks for listening to the Musicians Venture Podcast. Please leave ratings and reviews from wherever you're listening from. Check us out online at themusiciansventure.com for more information on what we have happening, to find past episodes, and ways to get in touch with us. Find us on social media at The Musicians Venture on Facebook and Instagram, and at Musician Venture on Twitter. Like and follow us on all those platforms, and hey, while you're there, engage with and share our content with your friends. 
The Musician's Venture Podcast is hosted by me, Nick O'Brien, with guest host appearances from Allison M. The podcast is produced by Shannon Coulard, with theme music by Mike Neumeyer. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>